This is Ni'ima Novetsky from alatorad.org. Today, we'll explore together the complex issue of vigilante justice as it plays out in one of the first stories in Sefer Shmot, Moshe's killing of the Egyptian taskmaster. Shmot chapter 2 recounts how upon growing up, Moshe leaves the palace to watch the Israelite slaves. He witnesses an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew and reacts by killing the taskmaster and then burying the body to conceal the crime. Most readers instinctively understand the story to be demonstrating Moshe's willingness to champion the cause of justice, even at great personal risk, viewing the deed as an initial indicator of Moshe's empathy and leadership potential. After all, the next two stories in the chapter, Moshe's intervening in the fight between the two Israelites and Moshe's helping of the daughters of Yitro, similarly portray him as a savior figure, intent on ensuring that justice is served for all. However, on closer inspection, it is not at all clear how Moshe's deed should be evaluated, whether the action should be lauded or condemned. Did the Egyptian taskmaster really deserve to die simply for smiting the Hebrew slave under his command? And even if he did, by what right did Moshe take the law into his own hands? Considering that Moshe was a prince of Egypt, could he have not stopped the beating without resorting to such an extreme measure? The verses raise several other questions which might bear on our evaluation of Moshe. First, what motivated Moshe to stand up for the Hebrew? Was he identifying with his brethren or simply standing up for the cause of justice? Did Moshe even know that he was an Israelite? Second, the same root, hika, is used both when describing the Egyptian smiting the Israelite, Maket Ishivri, and when discussing Moshe's killing of the Egyptian, Bayach Atamitzri. Does it have the same connotation in both verses? Did the Egyptian hit the Hebrew with intent to kill or just to inflict pain? Similarly, when Moshe struck the Egyptian, did he mean to kill him or only to stop him from hurting the Hebrew? Third, we are told that before acting, Moshe looked this way and that, and only upon seeing that there were no bystanders did he smite the Egyptian. Does this suggest that if people had been present, then Moshe would not have dared to act? Did he lack confidence that his actions were legitimate and justified? Or was he simply not convinced that others would find them so? Finally, how does Hashem evaluate Moshe's deed? Does the fact that Moshe is forced to flee and live in exile for an untold number of years suggest that he was punished for his actions? Or might the fact that chapter 3 opens with Moshe's initiation into leadership suggest that he was rewarded and chosen for this role specifically because of his deeds in our chapter? Commentators explore these questions, arriving at very different conclusions and evaluations of Moshe's deeds. Not surprisingly, though, the most prevalent approach is to justify and even praise Moshe's conduct. Many sources defend Moshe by vilifying the Egyptian and magnifying his sin. They suggest that the Egyptian taskmaster did not merely strike the Hebrew, but was guilty of heinous capital crimes, warranting Moshe's death blow. Thus, Midrash Tanhuma identifies the Ish Mitzri of our story with the Ish Mitzri mentioned in Vayikra chapter 24, verse 10, whose union with an Israelite woman produced the blasphemer. Based on this, they reconstruct the background to the story, suggesting that the Egyptian taskmaster had raped a married Israelite woman, and this was discovered by her husband. When the Egyptian realized that the husband was aware of the deed, he proceeded to beat him, perhaps to frighten him into silence. According to Tanhuma, when the verse states, 
that Moshe looked to and fro. It does not mean that Moshe was concerned about bystanders, but rather that Moshe saw with divine inspiration that the Egyptian had committed adultery and therefore that he was not considered a man, or in other words, that he was culpable of death. Since adultery is a capital offense even according to Noahide law, Moshe's killing of the Egyptian was warranted. One might nonetheless question what permitted Moshe to take the law into his own hands? Should he not have punished the crime through proper judicial procedure? This is perhaps what leads Shmot Rabbah to add that before acting, Moshe consulted with the heavenly court and angels. He did act with due process, just a divine rather than human one. Tanchum is highlighting that Moshe knew of the crime only through Ruach HaKodesh might similarly be meant to emphasize that Moshe's deed was guided by divine inspiration, not his own sense of morality. Alternatively, one might posit that Moshe acted in accord with even human law. His position as a prince of Egypt might have granted him legal standing to, pu to punish criminals. Though this, th though this reconstruction might justify the killing of the Egyptian and even explain how Moshe could act in an extrajudicial manner, it has one major flaw. Almost every assumption it makes is absent from the text. In fact, Rabbi Yom Tov Lipman Mulhausen, author of Sefer Hanitachon, a polemical work combating Christian attacks on Judaism, suggests that this whole approach is prompted mainly by polemical concerns. The attempt to defend Moshe against criticism by Christian theologians from Augustine on, who condemned Moshe's actions. As such, others look to defend Moshe in alternative ways. Rabbi Yaakov Mechenberg, a 19th century commentator, author of Hakadah Kabbalah, suggests that Moshe was not reacting after the fact to punish a capital crime, but intervening in medius ray to prevent a lawless murder. When the verse states that the, Egyptians, that the Egyptian was maket ishivri, this does not refer to a punitive whipping, but a striking with intent to kill. As such, Moshe was acting in accord with the din of a rodef, of somebody who is a pursuer. If one pursues another to take his life, it is permitted for a bystander to circumvent judicial proceedings and take the law into one's own hands so as to prevent the death. As such, Moshe was not committing murder, but he was engaged in pikuach nefesh, saving a life. One might nonetheless question, if Moshe's action was totally legitimate, why did he feel the need to survey the scene lest there be witnesses? In addition, if the Israelite's life was really in danger, should not this have been his first concern? This leads Rav Mecklenburg to suggest that really, Moshe was not checking, was not checking for witnesses at all. Rather, he looked around in astonishment that none of the Israelites present were defending their compatriot. Bayar ki ein ish, he saw that there was no one but him to come to the man's rescue, and so he acted. Rav David Hoffman, a 19th and 20th century German commentator, attempts to defend Moshe in yet a third way. Looking not at the culpability of the Egyptian taskmaster himself, but at the state of Egyptian society as a whole. He suggests, that amidst such tyranny and corruption, norms of law did not apply, and Moshe had no choice but to take extraordinary measures to ensure justice. Rav Hafman writes, Kol kavanato shal Moshe kan lo haita ela la'amod limin achiv ha'meuneh, v'zot lo yachol haya la'asot ela ayidei hamatata mitri. 
Moshe's entire intentions here were to stand at the side of his oppressed brother, and this he could not do except by killing the Egyptian. Shekain, miniaz manit shamaase inoi, rakaitam migara mitri bilti enoshize, lichpol et achzaryuto ba'atid. For a temporary prevention of the oppression would simply provoke the inhumane Egyptian to double his cruelty in the future. Is there any room to ask the law's opinion in a place where all human rights are trampled in arrogance? According to Rav David Tzvi Hoffman, the Egyptian need not have been trying to kill the Hebrew for Moshe's actions to be justified. In such a society, any act of oppression, if allowed to continue, would lead to a doubling of the oppression in the future. Under such circumstances, a slap on the hand does not suffice. One must act to completely end the injustice. The Nitziv, a 19th century commentator and Rosh Yeshiva Volajan, explains the phrase Ba'ifen ko vacho along similar lines, suggesting that Moshe initially thought to punish the Egyptian through due process, and he looked for an Egyptian authority which would be willing to intervene. But, Bayar ki ish, there was no authority to prevent the injustice, and his search was in vain, for the Egyptians' hatred of the Israelites wrote, overrode any concerns for justice, and none were willing to act. According to Rav Azariah Figo, a 17th century Italian rabbi, Moshe was looking not for Egyptian intervention, but to see if any of the Israelites would stand up for their brother. Again, Moshe looked in vain. Rafigo even goes as far as to say that the fact that all the Israelites were indifferent to the injustice betrays a major flaw in the character of Am Yisrael. This meekness and apathy was in fact one of the reasons that Israel deserved and was punished with such a lengthy exile. On one hand, Rav Hafman's justification of those who circumvent the law in a lawless society is easily understood. There are not many people, for, for example, who would question a Jew taking the law into his own hands in Nazi Germany. Nonetheless, not all cases are equally clear, and this approach needs to address a key question. In any given situation, who gets to determine that the law is corrupt or that society is unjust? At what point can an individual make that call and act accordingly? In contrast to all the sources we have discussed so far, a second approach to our story takes a more neutral view of Moshe's actions. It takes the Egyptians' actions at face value and prefers to condone Moshe not by magnifying the evil of the Egyptian, but by reducing the harshness of Moshe's own deed. Thus, Rav Gaon implies that Moshe's action was indeed problematic, but unintentional. When he struck the Egyptian, it was not with intent to kill. As such, the death of the taskmaster was completely inadvertent. According to this reading, both occurrences of the root hika in our story, the smiting by both the Egyptian and Moshe, refer to a beating, but not a death blow. This approach might be supported by the ending of our story. Moshe is forced to flee and seeks asylum in the house of a priest, returning to Egypt only after the avengers of the Egyptians' blood had died. This is precisely the, pun the punishment leader given to an unintentional homicide, exile to a Levite city of refuge to prevent the killer's death at the hands of blood avengers. According to Rav Sadia, 
Moshe was neither attempting to take the law into his own hands nor responding overly harshly to the Egyptians' actions. Nonetheless, the story highlights the danger inherent in all acts of violence. It is not uncommon for them to end with unanticipated results. One last approach goes a step further, actively blaming Moshe for the killing. It claims that his killing was both intentional and wrong, and that Moshe might have even been punished as a result. The most, po the most poignant expression of this, of this approach is found in Midrash Petirat Moshe, a picturesque account of Moshe's final dialogue with Hashem before his death. In the Midrash, Moshe asks Hashem why he needs to die, and Hashem points out that such is the fate of all mortals. After being pressed further, Hashem asks Moshe if he thinks he is more righteous than others who came before him, that he should live while they died. They discuss Adam HaRishon, Noach, Avraham, and Yitzhak, and in each case, Moshe points out that the others have indeed sinned or brought evil descendants into the world, while he has not. This leads Hashem to ask Moshe, Klum amarti did I ever tell you to kill the Egyptians? Amarlo, Moshe responds, You killed all of the firstborns of Egypt. Are you going to have me die for killing just one? Hashem then clinches the argument. Amarlo HaKadosh Baruch Are you similar to me who can kill and bring back to life? Are you capable of reviving, the, of reviving the dead like me? In summary, commentators' evaluations of, Moshe, of Moshe's killing of the Egyptian span the full spectrum. While most view the deed as worthy of praise, others see it as worthy of rebuke, and yet others stand someplace in the middle. The various approaches are motivated by both textual issues as well as philosophical and polemical concerns. The need to defend Moshe in the face of Christian criticism may have led some to justify and praise his action. Wariness of setting up a model of militant activism, or conversely, a desire to provoke readers into action, might have influenced yet other commentators. Finally, the various outlooks may be partially colored by general perceptions of Moshe. Was he a perfect leader, or did he have shortcomings? Did he start his career as Moshe Rabbeinu, or did he only grow into that title with time? For more on this topic and many other topics related to Parshat Shmot, please visit alatorah.org.